And today we're going to be looking at the fact that God wants us at the top of page 91 to enjoy what he has given to us. And we're reminded at the top of page 91 that we are God's managers. We are God's managers. Is that thing working? If I hit a button, what will happen? But that uh, first blank is we are God's managers. Now, we talked about that, so I don't need to belabor it. We had one session in particular where we talked about that issue a good bit. Let me just remind you as to what that is. A manager in, in the Bible is, in the King James Version of the Bible, is called a steward. And, and the idea is one who has been entrusted. One who has been entrusted because they are trusted. One who is trustworthy and therefore has been given a trust by another. Entrusted with somebody else's stuff to manage for the owner's purposes. So we are not owners, we are, we are managers. And we have been entrusted by God with his, with his uh, goods to use for his purposes. So this idea of trust and being given a trust is bound up in this notion of us being God's, God's managers. And I mentioned a few weeks ago when we looked at this that there's a notion in the business world, in the corporate world, of a board of directors, for instance, having a fiduciary responsibility toward uh, the shareholders. Now, that word fiduciary comes from a Latin word, fide, which means, which means faith. And that's why in the Protestant Reformation, you may remember one of the uh, watchwords was sola fide, faith alone. And so a fiduciary responsibility is one who has demonstrated faithfulness and faith has been then placed in those individuals in order to look after the interests of, of others. So we are God's managers. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, that it is required of a steward, a manager, that he be found faithful, trustworthy, because we've been then entrusted with things that are not our own. They belong to God and they are to be used for God's purposes. We saw from Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, Jesus gave the parable of the faithful manager, the faithful steward, who was given goods by his, by his master to be used for the master's purposes, and he was judged on how he used them. That will be true of us as well. We will be judged on how we use the things that God has entrusted to us. We are God's managers. The topic of this lesson, then, with that background, is this. Third of the way down, God truly wants us to enjoy the resources that he has given us, to enjoy the resources that he has given us. Now, let me beat on that for a little bit. God wants us to enjoy the resources that he's given us. It's all true. Then the question is, what brings me, what brings you enjoyment? So when we say God wants us to enjoy what he's given, it would be very easy for us, if we're not careful, in our carnality, in our, in our sinfulness, to look at it and say, cool. Once I give God his 10% tip, and I put the tithe in the offering. You all remember the tithe from a few weeks ago? Once I put that in the offering, then I've got this other 90% to do with 
whatever I want and to do just whatever I like. Well, it's true as well. You are free to do with what God has given you whatever you want within his parameters of, of righteousness and sin. But then you also have to ask this question, and that is, how has what I want to do changed? How has what I want been modified by coming to Jesus? How has the things that I enjoy and what I find enjoyment in been altered by my relationship with Christ? Because my perspective on the world and upon things has been radically altered. So what brings me enjoyment then has changed as well. So one of the reasons that people go to like Tanzania to be missionaries, you say, well, I know the reason people do that, because they're crazy. But, you know, we, but we know that it's because they get enjoyment out of something radically different now. They get enjoyment out of seeing, you know, we, we got a missionary in Tanzania. Brother Rob Howell, his wife Kara are there. Young couple, serving the Lord, have been for several years now. They have a, uh, an orphanage there, a children's home that they run. And they, their enjoyment is found in that. It's found in seeing people who don't know Jesus come to Jesus. And being used in the lives of people who have nothing to give them something as a means to see them come to Jesus. Well, that's a radical reordering of what you enjoy, isn't it? So the way you'll hear this taught and preached very often is God gives you things to enjoy, but we don't remind ourselves, as we must, that our definition of enjoyment should have been radically altered when we came to Jesus. Some of the things that you enjoyed before coming to Jesus, you still enjoy after you come to Jesus. If you like to bowl, you might still like to bowl. If you like to play golf, you might still like to play golf. It's all, it's all fine. But you have other priorities and things that are more important than that that may in turn, let me rephrase that, they will in turn, if done properly, affect how often you do those things. Do them every so often. I enjoy them. It's a good escape for me. We're going to talk about that in a bit, having an escape, rest and relaxation. But my enjoyment has, has been radically altered. What brings me joy should have changed. So as we look at this issue of God truly want us to enjoy, okay, but then what brings me what brings me joy? We need to ask that question. I had someone with whom I was debating years ago when I was still in the Pentecostal church. Most of you know I didn't grow up Baptist, I grew up Pentecostal. And one of the things our Pentecostal church believed was that you could lose your salvation, that you could be a Christian at one point, but sometime later you could lose that. And so you could have a relationship with Christ, but then two months, two years, 20 years later, you could lose that. You usually had to do something really big to lose it, but, but you could lose it, okay? Well, as I studied Scripture, I uh, became convinced that the Bible teaches that if you've truly come to Christ and you are His child, that that cannot be lost. And I was debating that with a friend as I was on my way out. Good guy, still my friend to this day, but here's what he said. It stuck with me all these years. He said, if I believed what you believe, 
that I could never lose it no matter what I do, then, this, these are his words, I'd just hang up my Bible and I'd start living like the world. And I said, well, here's the thing. When you come to Jesus, you don't want to live like the world. If you've truly come to Jesus and you've been born again, you want to live differently. Your desires are now different. So it's not, Jesus says, here's a free pass. So now you can sin with impunity. Even if you had such a free pass, you would say, I don't want it. Because my desires have been altered. And likewise then, as we ask the question, well, God wants me to enjoy the resources, but then the question is, where do I find my enjoyment? And each of us needs to ask ourselves those questions. Do I find my enjoyment in the lesser things of the world, or do I find my enjoyment in the heavenly things that Jesus talks about? And we'll see in Matthew chapter 6. Well, in fact, we'll see it in Matthew chapter 6 right now. You can look at it or you can just jot it down. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Remember what Jesus said. Do not, verse 19, store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 21, Jesus is saying, where you spend your money shows what you really care about. Where your treasure is is where your heart is. Where you spend your money shows what you really care about, shows what your affections are, what you really like, desire, enjoy. And he says, don't put them don't put your treasure in stuff that isn't going to last. But rather, put your treasure in those things that are going to last forever. That's what our friends in Tanzania are doing. And it's what too few of us as Christians, I'm afraid, do. So, God wants us to enjoy, but then we have to make sure we have a proper definition of enjoyment from a radically Christian perspective. Now, what does God give us in scripture that tell us some ways that we can invest what he has given in things that really matter and here's here's some of them are middle of page 91 the lord expects us to take care of our families take care of our families so as i receive from god and then i use what god has given as a means to enjoy one of the avenues for that enjoyment is the privilege of taking care of my family. Now it says that the Lord expects us to take care of our families and indeed 1 Timothy 5.8 makes that very clear. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith is worse than an unbeliever. Strong language. God does expect us to do that. But I like what the paragraph says underneath that. Taking care of your family is not only a God-given priority, it is a God-given privilege a God-given privilege. So it's not just something I have to do, it's a privilege to do that. And if I see it from that perspective, that this is something God allows me to do, to use what He has given in the life of those that He's placed in my family 
for his purposes in their lives, now this becomes not just an obligation, it becomes a privilege that God affords me. Notice the phrase God given in that paragraph. And here's why that's important. Remember that what you have in order to supply for your family has come to you from God. It's given by God. Otherwise, your ability to supply for your family, even doing the good thing of meeting the needs of your family, a righteous and good thing can become a source of pride. Well, see, the reason my kids have money to go to college and other people's kids don't is because... I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and I did that. Now, it's great if you're, you've got money saved up for your kids to go to college. But what you don't want to do is, in thinking about that, point to yourself as the reason for which that happened. But rather humbly view that as God's provision for you, used His way, resulting in, in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Here's what it says. First Corinthians 4, 7. Paul, who wrote it, asked the question, Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Then says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Do you see why there's a verse like that in the Bible? Because we're all afflicted with what John called in 1 John 2.15, the things of the world which include the pride of life, John called it. And so Paul says here, you've got to remember that you're nothing in yourself. You are not a self-made man or woman. Everything you have, you received. And if you recognize that, then don't boast as if you did it yourself. So even something good like providing for my family, if, not, if I'm not careful, can become a source of pride. But the Lord gives us the privilege of being involved in taking care of our families. Second, the Lord wants us to enjoy regular periods of rest and refreshment. Rest and refreshment. So, if I've got the means to go to, and I'm just making stuff up. If you've been here, I don't care. I'm just making stuff up, okay? Uh, if I've got the means to go to Tahiti next month, and then the next month go to Bermuda, and the month after that go to, and just you know, get, make up 12 of them, exotic locations for you to go to. If I've got the means to do that, does that mean I should do that? Is there, is there any better use of the Lord's resources than for me to play? If you can't think of any, then we need to study together. Now, this is saying that it's good to have rest and refreshment. And what I'm warning against is excess rest and refreshment even if you can afford it. To put it another way, you are not, we are not to be people who live to play. We are to be people who play to what? Play to live. 
we rest in order to charge the batteries so that we can get out and do what's really important. Now, the rest is really important. But the rest is not the reason for which we live. You know, there's a song on the radio several years ago that everybody's working for the, for the weekend. And that's the way it goes in the workaday world, and that's the approach that many of us can adopt. I work for Saturday and Sunday, assuming you get off on Saturday and Sunday. And so I work five days a week so that I can enjoy two days a week. Well, that's not the reason we work. And it's not the reason we play. We rest and we play so we can recharge our batteries and be most effective in what really matters. God gave this notion of rest as a pattern in creation. Six days do your work. On the seventh day, do not work. Rest and refreshment. Now, here's one way that has been helpful to me to think about this issue of, you know, vacation and God's resources and the best use of them and the need for rest and relaxation. This has been helpful to me. To think of vacation this way, think of vacation as diversion. Think of, think of vacation as not some place necessarily, but think of vacation as something different. It's a diversion from what you're normally doing. It's a way to get away from the everyday. That can be done by going golfing. That can be done by bowling. That can be done by going for a walk. That can be done by just taking a few days off to have some downtime. It can be done by going someplace as well. But the point is it doesn't have to be a place and it doesn't even have to be expensive. But the notion of enjoying rest periods of rest and relaxation is indeed something that God says, but he says it for different reasons than the world does. Think of vacation as diversion. It's been helpful to me, perhaps to you as well. Top of page 92. The Lord tells us that when we enjoy his blessings, we bring him more glory. When we enjoy his blessings, we bring him more, more glory. Now, if you plug in to the word enjoy there, my discussion on the previous page, think about what it is that gives you joy, and has that been radically altered? If that's the case, and now you invest and find your joy in the things that matter to God, now it is going to bring him more glory. How so? Well, we need to remind ourselves what glory is. You know, you just filled in the blank, glory. But you need to remember, I need to remember what glory is. So somebody tell me what glory is. Somebody just think for a few minutes. And, and biblically, what is the glory of God? Does anybody know? Like we talk about it, like if somebody were to ask you, what's your purpose in life? You would go, glorify God. And then if they say, so what is that? And, and we hear crickets chirping, that's a bad thing. Now, I know you've been listening to me for a while, so you could have easily zoned out. And now I've asked you a question, and you're having to wake up again. So you may not be prepared. But does anybody want to hazard a guess as to what the glory of God is? Sir. Oh, Lord can just take me home. 
you have made my day and my life. Thank you, brother. Yeah, to, to reflect God's, it's God's character. God's glory is his character. You guys heard that anywhere? Maybe. God's glory is his character. Well, how does that fit with, you know, me enjoying what he is, the benefits of what he has given? How does that bring him glory if glory is his character? Glory is who God is, his character. And to glorify then means to honor and praise God for his character, for who he is. Glory is God's character. It's who he is. To glorify God then is to honor, to praise God for who he is. Everybody good so far? Next time you're asked this question, you'll be able to beat Vince to the punch. God's glory is his character, who he is. To glorify God is to honor and praise God, then, for who he is. Now, how does that relate to how I enjoy what he is giving? given? Well, let's think about who God is. If his glory is his character and who he is, let's think about who God is. Is God the giver of life? That's who God is. God, is, God has life in himself. No one gave God life he is the great I am, the eternally self-existent one. He, has, he is the giver of life. Now, if I use what God has, has given as a gift from the giver of life, acknowledging that it has come from the hand of the one who gives all things, including life itself, I'm honoring and praising God for who he is. Who is he? The giver of all things, the giver of life. That's one of the things he is. Is God, is God in who he is, is God beautiful in who he is? Does the Bible teach that? It does. Throughout the Psalms, the beauty of his holiness, for instance, is spoken of many times. That God is, that God is has a beautiful, desirable quality about who he is. Now, how does that relate to how I use my stuff and how I get enjoyment? Well, if I, if I use what God has given me for the purposes that God has described in his word, then here's what I'm saying. I'm bringing glory to him by saying, God is more beautiful. God is more desirable. God is better than the stuff, the lesser stuff of the world. And so how I enjoy what God has given will either enhance or detract from his glory. Or my giving him glory. Now, if that's the way you define glorifying God, it's who he is. And you can just go down and make a list of the things God is. God's the giver of life. God is desirable and beautiful and attractive. And so I, I give what he has given me and expend what he has given me in order to experience more of that than I am saying that is more important than the lesser things of the world. That's how people give their lives and go to Tanzania. 
That's why they just don't care about the stuff the rest of us care about. Because they, their, their vision has been transfixed upon a beautiful, desirable, life-giving God. Hebrews 10. I told you about Hebrews 10 a few weeks ago. But since you didn't remember what glorify is, you may not remember what Hebrews 10 says. Let me remind you what Hebrews 10 says. And here are people who, you know, the world looks at it, and many worldly Christians look at it, and they go, those people are just nuts. Verse 32, Hebrews 10. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. And then here's, my, here's one of those great neglected phrases in the Word of God. The last part of verse 34. And joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Now I'm going to read on in a second. Middle, it's the middle of verse 34. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. How would you feel if you got an invitation to a confiscation of my property celebration? Come to our foreclosure party. That's what these people are doing. Joyful, not just resigning themselves to my stuff got taken by the powers that be because I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not what that says, is it? They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Everybody get the point? And then it goes on to say this. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And so we bring glory to God when we show that his character is worth more to us than the lesser things of the world. And that's what God's people did in Scripture. That's what God's people have done throughout the history of the church. And it's foreign to us because we have TV preachers who tell us that God wants you to enjoy stuff the same way the world does. So it brings more glory to God if you enjoy what he has given for the purpose for which he gave it, to bring glory to himself. Fourthly, the Lord instructs us to enjoy blessing the people he puts in our lives to serve. So again, this radical reordering of what brings me joy means that now I find joy more in giving than what? It is more blessed to give, Jesus said, than to receive. Now, there are four thieves of this joy, this enjoyment that God wants us to have, beginning on page 93. Four things that will steal your joy. The first one is worry. If you worry, you can't be joyful. 
And in fact, these are, these are contrasted in a famous passage in your Bible, Philippians chapter 4. Verse 4, be joyful in the Lord always. And again, I say be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But then it goes on to say in verse number 6, that's verse 4. Verse 6 says, do not worry about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. So the, the opposite of worrying is being joyful. I can't have the one if I'm going to have the other. If I worry, I will not be joyful. But if I'm joyful, I won't worry as well. Now, what is this worry? Sometimes people say, you know, I've just got a lot of responsibility on my shoulders, though. I've got, I'm a parent, I've got responsibilities for my kids, maybe I'm a supervisor at work, I've got responsibilities for that. You know, I own a business, I've got responsibilities for that, the economy's crazy, all of that. And, and here's what I find a lot of people mixing up. They mix up worry and awareness, or worry and responsibility, and those are not the same thing. And I say that to you to hopefully help you a little bit, it's been helpful to me. I have a good number of responsibilities myself. But I also have to obey this command not to worry. How do I do both of those? I recognize that I am aware of more things that can go wrong in the life of ministry and the church than most other people in the church. That just goes with the position. I'm aware of all sorts of stuff that you're not aware of just by the nature of the position. So I have a responsibility that makes me aware of things that not everybody else is aware of. But being aware of it, knowing what could happen with it, knowing what could transpire in the life of so-and-so tomorrow or next week or could go in the life of our church, being aware of that and being responsible for that is not the same thing as worrying about that. I have a concern about that. I have a care about that. How do I know if that responsibility, that awareness, that concern has slipped into sinful worry? How will I know if that's happened? When I cannot fulfill my responsibilities joyfully. I know I have slipped into sinful worry when I cannot fulfill those responsibilities joyfully. I can't do it joyfully because I'm worried about what might happen. No, I'm aware of what might happen. I have responsibilities in order to ensure as best you can from a human standpoint that what happens is the best course of action. And beyond that, I can have joy then because I'm not worried. Now, let me give you then the definition of joy that will help you identify then sinful worry. Joy is, you guys should know this as well, but I'm not putting any chips on that. <clears throat> Joy is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. That's what joy is. An abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. <clears throat> and see, that's why you can have joy in jail. 
That's why Paul could write from jail, rejoice. Because he still has this sense of delight that God's at work. Despite the fact that I'm in jail. It's why these people in Hebrews 10 could joyfully accept the confiscation of their property. Why? Because God's at work. And God's at work doing an ultimately good thing. And so I have joy even in adverse circumstances. An abiding sense of delight that God's at work even in this bad, lousy thing. And so, you begin to worry if you see the thing as other than that. You forget that God's at work. Now you start to worry, won't you? Okay, I'm in jail, and I know God does not know the address of this place. We're in deep now. This bad thing has happened to my health, to my loved one. And if I forget that God knows all about that thing and that God is at work in that thing, then I will worry. Worry robs joy. Here's another one. Oh, here's what you have to do. I'm sorry. Replace your worry with trust and prayer. Replace your worry with trust and care and prayer. And notice the word there that you didn't fill in. It's the first word there is replace. And in all four of these, you're going to have a replacement. Replace it. That's a very good thing. But God never tells us just stop doing something. Instead, you replace the thing that you were doing with something better. You find that in Ephesians 4. You don't just stop gossiping and lying in Ephesians 4. But you actually start using your tongue to build up others. You replace it. Now the tongue that was used to tear down still talks, but it talks toward a different end in a different way. Ephesians 4 talks about the use of our hands. Let him who stole steal no more, but let him work with his hands now so that he will have to give to those that are in need. He's still using his hands. He's still working, but he's employing those hands and that tongue and those feet and, every, and his thoughts... Everything is now replaced with something higher and better. Here's a second thief for joy. Middle of page 93, comparison, comparison. So the idea is, I don't have joy because I don't have what so-and-so has. And so I look at what other people have and I'm jealous. I compare myself to them. Why do they have it and I don't? All of that. We all know what that's like. That's why there is a phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. We don't have any Joneses, so you don't have to worry about keeping up with them. Okay? Because we compare. And we know, we know that we are to replace comparison with contentment. Being content with what God has given to us not jealous of what he's provided for others. Now, I just want to do one side thing, and then I'll move on to three and four. It is wrong for us to compare ourselves to other people. Jealousy is sin. It's lack of contentment with what God has provided for us. It's all true, and I think you all know that. But let me say as well that 
those who have means need to remember that you are modeling what's important to people who are looking up to you. Now, it is the responsibility of every person, me, you, every one of us, no matter what somebody else has, does with what they have, that's between them and God. I do not compare myself to other people. Everything we said, that's all true. But we all should remember that we are modeling in the way we pursue our lifestyle what is really important and modeling that to people who are less mature than us, who are looking up to us. I remember this keenly as a young man and looking at other people and they were modeling before me what was really important and what they pursued with their lives. And I had to make a decision about is that what's really important? Thankfully, I made a different decision. But you're impressionable at that age. That's the reason there are responsibilities given to those of us who are older. We're modeling by what we do before those that are looking to us what's really important. Bear that in mind in the choices you make with regard to how you pursue lifestyle. But comparison is certainly a thief of joy. Three and four, quickly. Selfishness will rob joy. You replace selfishness with sacrifice. But see, when you really have aligned your values and what you enjoy and what you love and what you desire with what God loves and desires and enjoys, then it doesn't seem like sacrifice. Now, sacrifice, as I said a few weeks ago, it's giving up something lesser for something greater. It is giving something up. But it is that. It's giving up something that is valuable, but it's something lesser in order to achieve something greater. And thus it doesn't feel like sacrifice at all. Now, I have no earthly idea. Does anybody know what Matthew 7, 5 has to do with this? Selfishness. Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I know what that verse means, and I have no earthly idea what it has to do with selfishness. Do you? Okay, good. Well, then let me give you a couple of verses that do have something to do with selfishness. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2 and verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but each one should consider others better than himself, than themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 24. Each one should look not to his, only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. 1 Corinthians 10.24 And then last, a robber of joy is false guilt. False guilt. Replace false guilt with gratitude. Now, here's what the, uh, the, the publishers are, are saying with that last one. False guilt. They're saying, in effect, use what God has given you. If you use it in a legal and, and, and honorable way, then you shouldn't feel guilty about it. Okay? Well, that may or may not be true, given all the other stuff I just said about God's priorities, bringing glory to God, and how we allocate our resources in a spiritually in a spiritual prioritization scheme. And so the key word there is false. 
there are times for us to feel guilt in the way we use our wealth. So don't get the idea, as I've already beat on, so I won't do it anymore, but don't get the idea that however I use my wealth, I should never feel guilty about it. As long as it's legal, then I shouldn't feel, feel guilty about it. You shouldn't feel false guilt about it. But false guilt presupposes that you've used your resources in true biblical ways as described in the previous pages. Okay? And you replace that with gratitude. With gratitude. All right. Over the next few weeks, we finish this series. We're done at noon. I always like to point that out to you. We're finished right at noon.